It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Today is Friday, August 7th, 2020. On this day in 1934, after months of deliberation, the U.S. Court of Appeals affirmed a ruling to remove the federal ban on James Joyce's novel, Ulysses, despite its scene depicting masturbation. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Today we're covering one of the most famous legal rulings in literary history, the American federal court's decision to strike down its 12-year ban on James Joyce's celebrated yet controversial novel, Ulysses. Now let's go back to the day the verdict was released, August 7, 1934. Morris Ernst sat staring down at his newspaper, delighted. He'd done it. He'd won the case. Ulysses would be printed and distributed to audiences all around America. Masturbation scene or no? He hadn't been at all sure of this outcome, despite his experience arguing against censorship in the courts. Ernst had fought so many censorship battles that he'd become something of a champion of the arts but he'd never defended a case like this one. Ulysses had made a stir in America long before he took the job. In fact, the book was controversial years before it was even completed. Its author, Irishman James Joyce, had published portions of the epic novel in a magazine called The Little Review, as he wrote. All was well until 1920, when the magazine published Joyce's 13th episode called Nosikia, that particular text contained what more Puritan-minded members of government considered an assault on the morality of the public. In short, it included a masturbation scene. Based on that passage alone, federal courts ruled the entire book to be obscene. In 1921, it was effectively banned from the United States and the magazine publishers were fined. But a decade after the ruling, Ulysses' scandalous reputation brought it widespread notoriety. Pirated versions were printed in droves, and Americans visiting Paris were smuggling back copies through customs. Everyone wanted to read the book deemed too dirty for public consumption. And before long, publishers saw an opportunity to make a pretty penny. That was if they could make the book legal. Enter Morris Ernst. For a nominal fee and a handsome share of the royalties, he was hired by publishing empire Random House to bring Ulysses back to America. And he had, almost. In late 1933, Ernst had taken the case to federal court and won. The book was not only ruled not to be obscene, but the judge practically announced Ulysses to be a work of literary genius. He stated, 
In writing Ulysses, Joyce sought to make a serious experiment in a new, if not wholly novel, literary genre. It was almost good enough to put on the dust jacket. Random House fired up their printing presses immediately after the ruling. By January of 1934, they had sold over 10,000 advanced copies at $3.50 a pop, nearly $67 today. By April, 10,000 copies became 35,000. But before Ernst could start collecting royalty checks, the government appealed the court's decision. By May of 1934, he was back in the courtroom to do it all again. This time, the case was being heard by a trio of judges. The bespectacled presiding judge Martin Manton, snowy-haired judge Augustus Hand, and coincidentally, Hand's cousin, Judge Learned Hand, a fellow with bushy eyebrows and a withering gaze. Ernst didn't know what to make of the three scowling men behind the bench. The last judge he'd made his case to had a reputation for liberal censorship rulings and a soft spot for the arts. These three, however, were wild cards. What worried Ernst the most, however, was the opposition. U.S. attorney Martin Conboy was a conservative Catholic and a member of the Clean Books League. Not the kind of man open to controversial literary expression, much less artistic portrayals of masturbation. One of Conboy's courtroom tactics involved reading the most obscene passages of the novel aloud to the court in an attempt to scandalize the judges. The New York Daily News reported that his readings were so effective that at one point, one of the few women in the room gasped and dashed for the door. Ernst, meanwhile, insisted that the book's popularity indicated that Americans didn't see Ulysses as pornographic, but rather as reputable fiction that reflected a stream-of-consciousness experience of life. A novel that should be judged not by isolated scenes, but for its literary merit as a whole. Ernst and Conboy volleyed back and forth, presenting argument after argument. But the trio of judges sat stoic behind the bench. Days later, after closing statements, the hearing adjourned. The judges deliberated their final decision. And now, finally, on August 7, 1934, their verdict was announced. Judge Manton had dissented. In his decision, he declared that masterpieces had never been produced by men given to obscenity or lustful thoughts, and claimed that Ulysses would undoubtedly fall under the Hicklin obscenity rule, which condemned works that would deprave and corrupt the morals of those whose minds are open to such influences. However, the cousins, Judges Learned and Augustus Hand, had formed a very different opinion. Augustus wrote, Ulysses is a book of originality and sincerity of treatment, and that it has not the effect of promoting lust, even though it justly may offend many. The court's decision was upheld two to one. Ulysses was returning to America. Coming up, we'll discuss the impact of the court's historic ruling. Now back to the story. On August 7, 1934, the U.S. Court of Appeals chose to uphold a ruling removing the government's ban on James Joyce's novel, Ulysses. 
Not only did the court decide the book wasn't obscene, but it was legally deemed a sincere portrayal of humanity. Thus, it deserved to be judged by its literary merit rather than its controversial passages. After a 12-year-long banishment, Ulysses was welcomed back to America with open arms. And because the book was still banned elsewhere, Random House became the first publisher to legally print the book in an English-speaking country. They sold tens of thousands of copies. American critics soon lauded Ulysses for its modernist prose and gritty yet honest characterizations. To this day, many people consider it one of the greatest works of fiction ever written. But the federal court's decision to overturn its ban didn't just affect Ulysses. As president of Random House, Bennett Cerf stated about the first judicial ruling in 1933, from the standpoint of literature and freedom of speech, we consider this one of the most important decisions ever rendered. And Cerf meant it. In its original editions of the book, Random House included pages reproducing the court's written decision, along with a foreword from defense attorney Morris Ernst. Ernst wrote, For decades, the censors have fought to emasculate literature. They've tried to set up the sensibilities of the prudery-ridden as a criterion for society, have sought to reduce the reading matter of adults to the level of adolescence. Ernst goes on to state that the significance of the court's decision can't be overestimated. It forged a path for future literature and art. For pieces that some may consider obscene, the 1934 court ruling provides a chance for this work to survive on the grounds of its artistic value. The verdict significantly changed the Supreme Court's framework for the legal interpretation of obscenity. As the judges in the Ulysses case established, a work must be evaluated regarding its aesthetic value as a whole. Thus, in a book like Joyce's, isolated parts considered obscene must be considered in the context of the entire novel. Partly because of this new perspective, the anti-vice societies of the 1920s and 30s quickly collapsed. Organizations like the Clean Books League had already vanished by the early 1930s, and archaic laws like the Comstock Act of 1873, which criminalized the circulation of obscene materials, crumpled. But the effects of the federal ruling didn't just change literary societies and the U.S. judicial system. Its impact rippled far past America's borders. While Ulysses was banned in America for 12 years, it had been censored in England since a 1922 printing was seized by authorities, and it wasn't legally available in Ireland for even longer. As a result, James Joyce wasn't able to publish his work in his own country. But before the 1934 ruling to lift the Ulysses ban in America, Joyce made a prediction. In a letter to a friend, he wrote, I suppose England will follow suit as usual a few years later, and Ireland a thousand years hence. Fortunately for him, he didn't have to wait that long. The first legal British edition of Ulysses was published just two years after the American court decision. In Ireland, Ulysses has become a celebrated example of Irish literature, and James Joyce, one of the country's most beloved writers. Morris Ernst had done his job. Ulysses was 
everywhere. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Alex Garland, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 